Hello and welcome to Vinyl Safari. My name is Sean Patterson. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Steve Waxman. Steve is a Canadian music industry professional with an incredibly vast and impressive career. He's worked in artist management, creative marketing, promotion, and much more at such labels as Ready Records, Attic Records, and Warner Music Canada. Steve's pedigree of artists is far too numerous and frankly astonishing to mention in full, so I'll list only a handful of names to give you a basic idea. If the names Neil Young, Ed Sheeran, Jimmy Page, Bruno Mars, or Van Halen mean anything to you, this is a podcast you're going to want to listen to. And trust me, that is a very abbreviated list. Steve is also the host of the Creationist podcast, where he speaks with creatives of all stripes, and I would highly recommend you check it out. The Creationist is available wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, we discuss Steve's career, his insights from working with the cream of modern music talent, how things have changed in the industry in the current era, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please remember to subscribe to Oak Ridge Ave on YouTube, follow Vinyl Safari on your preferred podcatcher, and share the podcast wherever you can. Thanks for listening, and now I bring you Steve Waxman. All right. Hello, Steve. Uh, thank you for coming on the Vinyl Safari podcast. This is very exciting for me. I'm really, uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, man. Yeah. Um, so full disclosure to everyone listening, this is not our first rodeo with Zoom <laughs> calls. In fact, we're basically veterans at this point. Um, I met Steve uh, over the summer while we were all sort of in lockdown um, on account of uh, a few uh it was like a connection of a connection of a connection type thing. And it, it, yeah. it, it caught um, our ear that Steve Waxman, um, you know, Warner Music Canada representative and, and various other amazing accolades um, was doing a uh, something of an artist development uh, building a narrative um, program. That was a six week Zoom call. Um, it was myself, a couple other guys from Oak Ridge Ave. Uh, and Shuffalo from Alberta and uh, Shakura Saida. And it was a really, really amazing experience, I have to say. And it was a... Oh, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it, man. And, um, so maybe why don't we start there? Um, what, okay. was, what was the uh, impetus for that, uh, that project? And, and how did that all get going? Well, I've been doing, I've been doing um, one-on-one for lack of a better term, consultations, uh, cons- consultations, <laughs> consultations with uh, with independent artists um, over the course of the year, and uh, you know what what I do is what I do. I call it um, entertainment career guidance, mm-hmm. and it, the idea is to help artists move along to the next the next um, step of their careers. It, understanding what their goals would be and then trying to help them achieve those goals by understanding what it, what kind of thinking is happening on the other side of a boardroom table with regards to record company and management people. So I've been doing that one-on-one with people and I just got to thinking that, you know, there's a lot of, there've been a lot of conferences, obviously, that artists will go to to get inside information, but also to try and network. And the reality is that they would sit in the back of the room, take in whatever information they can, and for the most part, network with their friends. 
And if they're lucky, they might run into somebody in the hallway that they saw speak, they'd give them their card, and that would pretty much be the end of it. So I figured that, you know, why not sort of take the concept of a, um, a convention seminar and make it more make it more focused and have it have it be just for a small group of artists um a maximum of five we did three artists but a maximum of five where everybody could actually have input you know they could get direct feedback and everybody could also um, bring into the meetings their own experiences and help one another and I would guide it a little bit with, you know, with the knowledge that I have and the background that I have. But, you know, you guys have your experience. And I think that there's, you know, valuable things for you to share, you know, as the other artists that were in, you know, in this collaboration hub had to share with you guys. So I think, you know, that was the part of it that I wanted, you know, I wanted to accomplish something good out of it. And I was really, I was really excited that, you know, everybody seemed to really enjoy what they got out of it. And seem to have something valuable. I mean, I certainly got a lot of valuable information out of it as well myself. Yeah, absolutely. We, it was, it was great for us. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, given that, you know, for almost every independent artist, certainly, uh, business as usual kind of ground to a halt over the summer. Yeah, so, um, being able to at least, uh, still chip away at and work towards goals and, and start to build, like you say, a, a narrative, a, a structure um, in which to work and, and uh, develop ourselves was really uh, a welcome experience. And it was something, cool. it was unlike anything we'd had before, really, because we, you know, we have mentors and people we've spoken to um, in the past who give us great advice and, and help us along. And there was just something really unique and different about the collaborative aspect, like you say, about being able to bounce ideas and experiences off of other artists as well as yourself. And um, I, I really, I can't say enough good things about that. It, it really helped us get into a, a good headspace uh, moving forward. I mean, obviously, none of us expected to be you know, more or less in a, in a similar spot, um, however many months it is months down the here. road now. But um, all things considered, it really ha it really did sort of shape how we went about the um, preceding half year in, in planning what to do and, and where to go from where we were after having released our record. So thank you, first of all, for, for putting together that uh, that collaboration hub. Um, I, I just want I just want to, the other thing that was really exciting about it for me was that all three artists were so different musically mm -hmm. and from different parts of the country. So yeah. I, I thought that was really, you know, and at different stages of career and different stages of experience. So I think that that was, you know, that was really exciting too, because even, you know, someone, you know, like Shakura, who's had a lot of experience, learned so much from you guys about the way you guys are doing, you know, you and Shuffalo are, you know, interacting with audiences now mm -hmm. with social media. And I think that you guys learned a lot from her with regards to, you know, focusing on having specific goals and being able to um, visualize these goals and, and and hopefully attain them that way. Yeah, it it was a, a a really interesting group of people, and it, yeah, like you say, we it was it was there was a weird synergy there that I I really found um, quite wholesome and 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 very beneficial and. 
uh, it kind of felt like you know, we were really quite good friends by the end of it. You know, we'd, Absolutely. we'd, we'd been through all this craziness throughout the summer and got to learn all about each other's experiences and goals. Yeah. It was, it was something else. Um, cool, so yeah, I, I, I loved that. That was an, an amazing way to get to know you um, and to get a sort of an insight into how you approach artist development and, and things like that. Um, so I want to take a little bit of a step back uh, at the moment and, hear a little bit more about your career beforehand um would you mind just sort of giving us a, a general overview of your time working um with these various uh record companies and, and artists before uh becoming more of an independent i suppose my my pleasure i I'll, I'll try to do the best i can to do a reader's digest version though i can okay. to ramble yeah there's a lot of history there there's a lot there is a lot of history so i'm gonna i'm gonna wind back the tape a little bit here um, I did grow. I did grow up in Toronto, mm -hmm. and um, and did you know did spend at least a couple of years wanting to be a rock star, but it didn't work out for me. Anyway, I I did grow up in Toronto. I ended up going to New York to go to NYU to study to be an actor, and when I graduated, um, while looking for work, I a friend of mine was the receptionist um, for Bill O'Coyne, who was the guy that managed Kiss in the seventies, and at the time. I went to visit her. Um, his biggest client was Billy Idol. It also happened that I went to visit for, you know, pretty much right on, right on top of the first major recession in the music industry. So um, the O'Coin offices had gone from, uh, I think, I th something like 37 full-time employees over two floors on Madison Avenue to eight employees on one floor, literally over the course of a week. Yeah. And I happened to be there just after all of that happened. So I was sitting there, um, you know, I was visiting with my friend Milhan, who I said was, you know, was a receptionist there. And she was like, you know, it really sucks around here. It's really quiet. And, you know, we're missing a lot of people and we're having a hard time getting stuff done because we don't, you know, in, in that particular case, we don't have a, um, an office boy <laughs> to run, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, you know, run contracts around town and to deliver stuff and things like that. I was at the time I was looking for a job in the advertising world. And I said to her, hell, I'd work here for nothing if I could use the offices to do some writing because I was a I had graduate I had graduated from NYU with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in drama and dramatic writing. Mm -hmm. So um, I said, if I can use the offices here to do some writing and to be a place where people that I'm applying for jobs at could reach me, then that would be great. Um, so she brought out the office manager, this woman, Stephanie Tudor, and Stephanie and I had a conversation and I think this was on a Thursday or a Friday and on the Monday I started and I, you know, the office opened up at 10 o'clock and I like to tell everybody this and whether it's the truth or not, it's so close to the truth that it might as well be the truth that by noon, having never known that side of the music industry by noon, just the couple hours that I saw what was going on there. It's like, this is what I want to do. I want to be involved with this side of the industry. This is really, really cool. I mean, I could see the possibilities with regards to working with artists. I under, you know, I, I had already heard a few marketing conversations. So it was like really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. So I ended up working there for a couple of years, basically from the time that um, Billy Idol came off the road from um, promoting his first EP through the end of recording the Rebel Yell album 
Um, he was about to release the second single off of Rebel Yell, which I believe was the song Flesh for Fantasy. And that's when I moved back to Toronto. Okay. Um, and I was here doing, oh, I was doing film editing of industrial films. That was so boring. Um, but about six months after that, I ended up getting a job um, with Ready Records, which was an uh, independent label here in Toronto that had the spoons. And I was able to talk my way into being um, the director. I'm not going to even say director. That wouldn't be fair. I will talk my way into doing radio promotion and publicity okay. at Ready Records, having never done it before. They offered me, I talked my way into the job. They offered me the job on the Thursday. On the Friday morning, I flew back to New York and went to Chrysalis Records, which was Billy Idol's label and spent the morning with the uh, head of radio promotion at chrysalis went for lunch spent the afternoon with the head of publicity at chrysalis wow. and i figured i'd learn what i needed to learn to, to get started and then on monday i flew back to toronto and went into the office at ready and started my career and um i was at ready for about 10 months and uh, we had we actually the very first record i worked was uh, The Spoons Tell No Lies, which ended up being a top 10 single, mm -hmm. which was great. And, um, but after 10 months, the, the label just couldn't sustain itself and, and uh, they went out of business. I ended up going on the road with Honeymoon Suite, um, helping sell merchandise on the road and doing a little promo on the road with them that summer. And then um, a few months later in December of whatever year it was, 83 or 84, 85, I don't remember anymore. <laughs> um, I got a call saying that there was a, a, a position available doing radio promotion and publicity at Attic Records, which was Canada's largest independent label. Mm -hmm. And I went in, spoke to Al Mayer, the president there, and he, he offered me the job of radio promotion publicity. And I got right into it and had a blast. I mean, we had some really super successful records over the years. We had, we had a great success with a band out of PEI called Haywire. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of success um, with Lee Aaron. There was a Jennifer Warren's record, Famous Blue Raincoat, that was huge. I mean, we just, we did a lot of really, really great creative things over the course of the years. And then in 92, in the, the spring of 92, um, I got a call from Warner Music Canada, and they said, we're looking for someone to head up our publicity department because we need our publicist has left. Would you be interested in coming to talk to us? And I'm like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And so I went in, spoke to them. I already knew these guys because, um, you know, I mean, been in the had been in the industry for a few years at that point, and, you know, I had enough of a reputation and I'd known them from starting e even from when I was at ready records. Cause ready was distributed by Warner. Right. And, you know, I sat down with a guy named Dave Tollington, who was the head of domestic marketing. And he said to me, you know, Steve, Warner is a bit of a dinosaur and we need, we need a virus in the belly. And we think that you could be the virus in the belly. And so I'm like, I accept uh, that's, I mean, that's the kind you know, I, I like to, I like to think that I'm a creative thinker, and I like to you know I, I try my best to you know take a look at what's been done before, and then go in the op opposite direction, see if we can make a new path. Right. And so you know, I fumbled along the way, tripped over my own laces, 
because it's a big company when you try to make a lot of changes in a big company and you're you know you're one person that sees things so so differently it's like you really you know i had to make my mistakes and then take a step back and try and fix them along the way so that was that was march of 92 and i was at warner until august of 2019 so that's a long long time <laughs> 27 oh, years certainly. at one label i think this is i think it's some sort of record must be and um in the middle of all you know in the middle of that i was doing as well as doing publicity i was also doing video promotion and for a two and a half three-year period I, on top of those two I was also doing radio promotion and that was the toughest time in my career because when you're doing all of that at a major label that's like a you know eight in the morning till 10 at night job yeah, no five kidding. to six days a week <laughs> so and then you know and then in August there was you know you know there was, it was time for change and you know I struck out and had you know struck out on my own with this idea of taking the knowledge that I have from all these years, working major labels, independent labels and management companies and working with independent artists. I mean, so many, you know, there's so many people out there that are trying to make, make it one way or the other in the music industry. And as someone said to me, it's like, they don't know what they don't know. And you know, a lot, Steve. So you know a lot, Steve. So if you could, you know, maybe, you know, it'd be really, really helpful to people to get access to the knowledge that you have and the guidance that you can give them. So that's kind of what brought me to here. Well, fantastic. I, um, I've heard various parts of that story um, in fragments through the summer and it, it just fascinates me every single time I hear that. Well, I haven't, I suppose I haven't yet heard the whole thing, but um, <laughs> it's just, it's a whole other side of the industry that I give so little thought because I spend so much time just thinking about doing the music and, you know, yeah. You know, wide eyed dreaming of being a rock star and whatnot, but um, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so I wanted to touch a little bit more on your idea of narrative. This was a really big core uh, theme of the collaboration hub was yeah. um, building and defining a narrative. And I was just curious to know what that means to you um, and how you view that and, and the importance of that um, for an artist in this day and age. Sure. You know, it's, it's again, it starts with the artist having a vision, you know, vision and narrative to me are, are interchangeable words. And it goes back to the very first lesson that I learned in the music industry when, you know, that first week that I was working for Bill O'Coin and he explained to me that, you know, those of us who are not the artist are facilitators. But we need to facilitate for the artist's vision. And certainly somebody like Billy Idol had a very clear idea of how he wanted to be seen in the world. The members of KISS obviously had a very clear idea of how they wanted to be perceived. It then becomes the partners, the, you know, the, those of us that are, you know, on the others, on the other side of the table to, you know, take the artist's vision and be able to, you know, help market that vision in in a way that respects what the artist has in mind for how they want to be seen in the world. You know, mm -hmm. they, well, you know, as I said, we're facilitators. So if you know, if we're radio promotion people, we want to promote records, you know, using the kind of language that an artist would want us to use. The same thing for a publicist, and same thing for marketing strategies, and on and on and on. 
So everything needs to come out of the artist. So let's take vision and uh, the interchangeable word, which is narrative. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the artist can articulate what their story is to their partners, their partners can then go and do their jobs on behalf of the artist and the artist can feel confident that these people are representing them and are a part of the team. At the same time, by having that clear narrative, when you're writing songs, the songs don't stray too far away from the kind of band that you want to be. Right. And that's, you know, and that's where we're talking about creativity. It's the same thing with the kind of um, uh, content that you're creating also is, you know, is it aligned with the narrative that you as an artist have um, articulated to people? And then from that, you can be fairly confident when you have all that in place that the audience that you're trying to reach understands what kind of artist you are and can then, as they become fans, they, you know, those fans are going out there and they're be basically being your army, right? They're being the KISS army. They're being your army and they're advocating on your behalf mm -hmm. to their friends. And they're advocating using words that describe you the way you feel you should be described. Right. So almost like sort of an oral tradition as an extension of the artist and music itself, something that Absolutely. sort of transcends what they actually do and builds it into something of a, I guess, something of a cultural artifact, as long as that is passed along. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you could call it a mission statement too, because I don't think it, I don't think necessarily that the words that come out of your mouth as an artist to uh, to define your narrative are necessarily the words you need to use mm -hmm. when you're articulating to other people. But I think that they're the words that if you decide that you're, you know, they're not the appropriate words to articulate, but they are the appropriate words to keep you focused on where you want to go and who you want to be. So, you know, much like anything else, I mean, we talk, you know, again, as you talked about as a, as a musician, there's a lot of things you don't think about. Well, once you start thinking about them, the, you know, the business part of it, that doesn't mean that you're going to let everybody in on the business that you're doing. It just means that you're now aware of what needs to be done and whether you're doing it yourself or you have somebody else doing it for you, whomever is doing it, whether it's yourself or somebody else, they can be held accountable because you have an understanding of what it is that you want to accomplish as an artist. Right. Okay. That's fantastic. Um, no matter how many times I hear that, I, it just sink, it sinks deeper in every time I hear you explain it because it just gets further and for, or I guess closer and closer to what the number of it is. Um, and it's something that, like I say, we, we really <coughs> consider it um, as artists, despite the fact that we were participating in it for our favorite artists. You know, mm -hmm. I recognized what the yeah. narrative was and the vision was for all of my favorite artists, but it never really struck me to uh, focus on what that might be for ourselves. So, and and they don't, you know, again, <coughs> excuse me. I mean, th those artists don't necessarily sit down as a group yeah. and say, okay, what's our narrative going to be? And, you know, what kind of group, do, but they do, well, okay. They don't sit around and say, what's our narrative going to be? And what is the message that we're going to get to people? But they do, you do. I mean, you, you know, you, you, we get together with your friends and you start 
you know, hacking away on, on your instruments and you, you know, even if you're just playing um, covers, more often than not, you're going to lean towards a particular sound mm -hmm. in the covers that you choose. Because those are the things that are going to be cool to you, and those are the things that mean the most to you. And and it'll get to the point even where you start taking covers from artists that are outside of what your core is, and you are starting you start to play them that they fit inside of that sound. Mm -hmm. And then when you start writing your own music it also is inside of that sound, you know, whether it's consciously or not. And more often than not, it's look at you guys, you know, when you're not playing and you're just sitting around, you know, having a beer or smoking a cigarette, you're having conversations about music and it's all a part of who do we want to be? Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. It's funny that the actual um, playing part of, of being in a band and being a, a, an artist is like, two percent of the entire experience if that so uh, and like you say i mean most of the experience i have with my band members is sitting around having a beer listening to our favorite records talking about mm. our favorite records talking about guitars and all this so um yeah this um i did want to um go a little bit more as well into sort of how things have changed um over recent years obviously this year is an anomaly in and of itself mm -hmm. but there has been a trend um, over, gosh, well, it, 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 I guess it's going on three decades now uh, where there's been a real fundamental change in the way people consume music and the role of music as a viable sort of career and money-making thing. Um, so I'm yeah. intrigued to know what your general thoughts are about um, the way the music industry has changed. And maybe, uh, I guess, if we could um, link in what narrative and vision has to do with that and how, and if that has changed or if that remains the same and sort of uh, has a significance at the core of the whole thing. Well, okay. How, how I'm trying to think of- There was a lot in there. There is a lot in there. I'm trying to separate a few things. So obviously the biggest change for me, and I think it's, the, I think the biggest change is actually the most positive change. The biggest change obviously is, uh, is social media. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think social media, I call it the most positive change because what social media has done has given more power to the creative person to communicate directly with fans and potential fans. Mm -hmm. There are no more, you know, you no longer have to be concerned about gatekeepers. You no longer have to be concerned about whether or not you've been chosen to be in the newspaper or been chosen to be in a magazine or be chosen to be on a television show or be chosen to be, you know, on a radio station, you can now create all of this content and put all of this content out and tell the story the way you want the story to be told. Even if you, you know, even if you get an interview with a, a television station, they'll talk to you for 15 or 20 minutes and they'll do a two minute piece. Mm -hmm. they'll tell the portion of the story they want to tell the way they want to tell it. Now you get to tell the story the way you want to tell it. And if that means it's five minutes, or 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour, that's you know, what do you want? Hour long podcasts. And uh, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's the biggest change. It's like, I mean, and you can even see it in the contraction of media across the, you know, across the country. They don't know what to do with themselves. I saw, 
over the course of the last 10, 15 years, as each new um, social media property um, emerged and artists were you know, building their own um, following on these, um, on these platforms, the traditional media that we would set up interviews for, their big concern was, okay, we've done this piece and we've put it on TV or we've put it in the paper or whatever. Will you now, you know, will the artists now share it on their socials? They were putting more value in the artist sharing it on their socials so that theoretically the media outlet could get more viewers or more eyeballs yeah. as opposed to the other way around where you as an artist would want the media's, you know, the, the people watching the media passively to discover you. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, obviously there, you know, there's a lot more noise. I mean, when there's, you know, when there's 6 billion Facebook pages and, you know, 600 television stations, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot more noise out there, but we can't go back. So you have to, you have to, you know, we're not putting the genie back in the bottle. So yeah. you have to, you know, you have to accept that there is this new way of doing things, that there's a lot more positive than negative in doing it. And as I said to somebody just yesterday, and I think I probably said it to you guys too in the summer, you know, a lot of people, a lot of artists especially, are, look at social media as a chore, which is, to me, is ridiculous. You should look at social media as yet another opportunity to be creative. Mm-hmm. You should be able to have fun with it. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in a band that has four or five members, you know, people within the band, you know, within the band can take the responsibility of saying, okay, guys, today we're going to do a monkeys type video, or today we're going to, you know, today we're going to post pictures of us all drinking our favorite beer, whatever, you know, whatever craziness mm -hmm. it might be. So rather than seeing it as, oh God, I got to post something today. What am I going to post? What am I going to post? It's like, be creative. This is, this is yet another opportunity. I mean, that's who you are. That's who, and quite frankly, that's who all of us on the planet are. Everybody on the planet is creative. Yeah. And it's just a matter of finding the thing that really, you know, turns your crank. What's your passion? Yeah, totally. It's, um, it's, it, it's definitely a learning curve. So uh, it's weird for me to say, because I mean, social media has been around almost as long as I have. So I've had, I've had as, you know, and, and being brought up sort of in that era, I've had as much time as anyone to, to get to know it. Um, but it's crazy just how fast the medium evolves um, and how quickly things change. And, and you know, uh, a couple of years ago, nobody was talking about TikTok. Now, if you're not on TikTok, I mean, what the hell are you doing? Right. You know, more eyeballs on that than almost anything else. So um, it's... And, and, but, and, and, and you know what, and five years ago, it was Snapchat. Yeah. So does that does that mean that TikTok's going to disappear in two years? It might, but while it's here, how are you going to take advantage of it? I don't know if I'm a dinosaur for still using Snapchat. The band still snaps each other all the time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's it, it's it's almost overwhelming. But in a way, like you say, if you view them as opportunities for creativity and for um, expanding your influence and your audience and all of these things, it really does make a difference with how you, um, how you utilize them rather than making right. it a chore, making it into, you know, just another opportunity. Um, that's something that 
we have been trying to work on uh, of late and honestly will continue to work on. I don't think there's a, ever really an end game with that kind of thing, but of course uh, not, not for anybody. Yeah. But it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good thing to be optimistic about that kind of stuff. Cause like you say, it's not yeah. going anywhere. Yeah. And you know, it's look at it. it and it's, just, it's funny. Um, I think that, you know, people look at signing with a major label as, you know, this great opportunity, but the reality is when you get signed to a major label, they're going to want you to continue doing the things that you're already doing. Mm-hmm. I had a I had a really um, a really great conversation with uh, there's a singer songwriter called Alec Benjamin who's fairly popular out of the U.S. Mm-hmm. and he did he did a lot of work on his own before he was signed to a major label. Well, actually, well, I shouldn't say that. he did a lot of work on his own. He was signed and dropped from a couple of major labels before he had a you know, started having big hits with Atlantic Records, but. Um, you know, he did a lot of work on his own. And when he finally got a record deal, we were, we were sitting having lunch one day. Um, he had come up to Toronto to do some promo and we were having lunch. And, he, you know, we started talking about how life is changing for him. And he said, you know, I would do 10 things the best that I possibly could. And then I got a record company and that meant I could do 10 things and they could also do 10 things. So that doubled it up. And then I got a good management company and they could do another 10 things. So now instead of me doing 10 things, there are 30 things happening for me. Right. You know, the work never stops. Mm-hmm. It's there's, you know, there's no, there's no easy path to success. And the important thing is to have realistic goals so that you always feel like you're successful. Yeah. For sure. I, I think that, I think that's really, really important. I think that people, you know, if your goal is to be, if your only goal is to be Lady Gaga or you too, you might get there, but oh my God, you're going to be so upset from day to day <laughs> trying yeah. to get there is because it's such a hard slog. If your goal, you know, if you have a serious, you know, if you have a big goal like that, that's fine. But for goodness sake, give yourself a bunch of little smaller goals that are, you know, are within your grasp so that you can take each of the little steps to get to that, you know, that grand vision that you have for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to belabor that one too much, but that's, that's, that's a really important point um, pound, for pound. any musicians <laughs> yeah, listening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I did want to veer a little bit more into, uh, something a little different. Um, sure. so interestingly, I found this interesting, at least as a guitar player, um fender apparently fender guitars sold more guitars in the year 2020 than they did in any other year in their existence which for me is exciting because i you know people always say ah rock and roll's dead the guitar you know it's it's on the way out you can't hear it in pop music these days which is true to a large extent but i've i've been in the corner fighting for the guitar for a long time and i will definitely not allow it to die in my lifetime but it gives me a lot of excitement to know that there are there's this whole new generation of young people and older people who maybe have wanted to play uh instruments that just never had the uh i guess the the drive to finally do it are doing it now mm-hmm. and and that gives me a great amount of excitement just at the prospects of of real instruments um coming back into the forefront which i hope happens and i i don't you know it's it's never going to revolutionize music the way it did back in the 50s and mm-hmm. 60s and it's certainly got a lot of chasing to do if it's going to catch up to the role of the laptop today 
Um, yeah. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that, uh, on the potential for a resurgence of that type of thing, and just generally what it means to have a new generation of young musicians uh, emerging. Well, I, uh, well, I think it's really important. Uh, music, I think, is really important to have in your life and not just, I mean, listening, you know, if all you do is listen to music, that's great. And I don't, and I don't mean it's great because it's great for the music industry. I mean, I just think that it's great for everybody's soul yeah. to find, you know, to find sound that, that can move their, move them emotionally. But I know that for myself and I know that for people like you, you know, like yourselves that, you know, being able to learn how to play even one instrument, is an intellectual process that helps you in so many different ways. It helps you socially, but it also helps you intellectually because it's a, it's a process where, you know, you're taking something you don't know, you're doing something that isn't easy, but you can immediately, I mean, I, I think at least that anybody can sit down at any instrument and give them just a few minutes. They'll be able to make a sound that's, reasonably pleasant with that mm -hmm. instrument once that happens for you it then becomes okay where do i go from this one note and if you stick with it for five or ten minutes you'll find two or three notes that go together and you'll start realizing that you're playing a song mm -hmm. and then it just becomes okay now how do i become more proficient at it Am I willing to, you know, am I willing to practice more? Am I, you know, and then eventually do I see the possibilities of how do I create on this thing? How, you know, what can I learn? There's, you know, obviously, you know, the greatest musicians in the world, you know, are always talking about how they're still learning. I mean, there's no, as you said, there's no end, but that's part of, that's part of what's fun about it is that there is no end. So it's, it's endlessly fascinating, no matter what instrument it is that you're trying to learn how to play. And at the same time, while you're trying to learn how to play that instrument, you're working a particular way. Not unlike you know, people that do crossword puzzles. It's like your mind is working in a way that if you didn't try to learn how to play an instrument, your mind just wouldn't click that way. Yeah. You, know, you wouldn't think of alternative ways of thinking about how things go together. Mm -hmm. it, it kind of stimulates creativity in in all kinds of different ways. It, 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 it gets your mind, it's, it's like an exercise in creativity almost. Um, yeah. I find the guitar to be a, uh, an especially um, useful tool for that simply because of how many different ways you can approach it, how many different ways you can make the same sound. Um, and you know, some of the most liberating things I can do on the guitar is figuring out multiple different ways to play the same thing. And you unlock yeah. you know, all these different um avenues that you wouldn't have known were there if you just stuck to the one um and i oh, think that, that approach yeah. is is applicable everywhere really i mean I've, I've been playing guitar for almost 45 years now and i'm only now beginning to un i mean I, I i've played a lot i mean I, i've played a lot but I, but i haven't understood a lot of what i've played <laughs> and i've only now started to understand that you know, you can play, you don't need to play full chords. You can play pieces of chords and you can play pieces of chords on many different areas of the fretboard and you can play them in, you know, all different kinds of ways with all different kinds of rhythms. And, 
you know, you could hold the pick a different way and it sounds different. I mean, it's really, you know, that kind of stuff is really exciting. And I mean, it's funny that you say, you know, that you bring up that in 2020, more guitars were sold by Fender than in any other year in their history, because prior to that, prior to 2020, the guitar was becoming out of vogue. It, the sales, you know, Gibson had to, you know, Gibson sold its company and things like that. It's yeah. like, and, you know, the only thing that seemed to be propping up the guitar industry at the time was Taylor Swift and acoustic guitars being sold yeah. to young girls. And I think that what happened in 2020 with the lockdown is people wanted to learn how to play an instrument. The instrument that has had, um, that has had its death knell is the, is the upright piano. And I think that this is sort of, personally, I just think that bringing guitar into the house is a lot easier than bringing in a brand new piano. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, and so it's, you know, an opportunity for people to learn instruments. And, but I think that that's the thing. It's like, can we, you know, can we give kids access to instruments to hold in their hands so that they can learn? And it doesn't have to be rock and roll. I think the I think I think the one thing the one thing that has sucked, but okay, you and I we wanted to be rock stars, because that's you know you know so there's nothing wrong with kids today wanting to be pop stars, mm -hmm. but their access to what pop stars are are so different than what your access to what rock stars were and what my I mean just between you and I. Yeah, it, it's a yeah. huge difference where, you know, when I wanted to be a rock star, it really come it came out of, you know, the may, you know, the four or five magazines that we would see on a regular basis and Don Kirshner's rock concert and Burt Sugarman's in concert. So we and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the 80s, there was MTV and, you know, you, you know, and I guess you're sort of from the later, later 80s, early 90s really you know mm -hmm. becoming you know falling in love with that kind of stuff but when you fell in love with that kind of stuff and nirvana is the biggest musical act in the world then that's your perspective when aria Ana grande is the biggest artist in the world then kids today want to be pop stars and that means there's 20 people writing a song and a lot of that song is composed on a computer mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that yeah. so long as those kids are not just taking samples and pasting them together. They're understanding what makes a song a song. Yeah. And you can tell the and difference. I've heard yeah. some incredibly creative uses for uh, synthesizers and, 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 and loops and all the kinds of things you can do with, with laptops. Um, and yeah, it really does make a difference when you tell that there's some real creativity going on. Um, and yeah. it's the same thing with, you know, not exactly the same thing, but the same impulse with somebody discovering something new on something like a guitar. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I mean, it, the computer's just, a, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of instrument. The thing is, again, it's like, how creative are you going to be? Are you, or are you just copying and chopping what other people have done? Yeah. It would be great if you understood how that sound was made. And that means, you know, understanding that there was a human being with an instrument in their hands. Yeah, making that sound that you use that microsecond of a clip to you know to move your your track along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, a really interesting time to like I I have uh, I really wish I was more proficient with 
building uh, the basics of, of songs and things on computers. Cause I still like, if I want to record a demo or work on a song to send to, you know, one of the other bandmates, especially these days when we can't get together, I still am like miking up my amplifier and mm-hmm. singing and, 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 you know, doing bass and, and I don't even use percussion because I don't have a drum kit and all this stuff. And then my, I have a cousin who's incredibly proficient at um, making electronic dance music and he can turn around an entire song that sounds as far as I can tell, original, creative, uh, interesting, and almost fully completed in an hour and a half. Um, and it's just crazy that like the way that we, we like, people apply skills and, and their time and what you can accomplish. And it, he also is a musician, he plays the guitar as well. So he, he, mm-hmm. he similarly has a trepidation about just reusing samples that other people have made. And, you know, he goes out of his way to make his own and to incorporate things like guitar and all that. But, um, it's yeah, wild. Yeah, I, yeah I, I had a conversation with uh, David Guetta a few years ago. And really? I, I said to I asked him, I was like, you don't play an instrument, but you write songs. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I don't play an instrument, but I know what the sounds are. And I can tell somebody what the sounds are and they can go get them for me. And, and, and that's not just not, that's not just samples, but it's like, you know, you write a song like Titanium and, you, you know, you, you, you know, anybody can hum. Anybody can go, mm, do, do, you know, and, yeah. and you, you know, you, if you can't play the, the keyboard, you can hum it to the person that can play the keyboard. Right. And if they're playing a bunch of notes that you think are good, and then there's a couple of notes that you don't think are right, then you sit with them and you try and find the right notes. So anybody, you know, anybody can write a song, not anybody can write a good song, but anybody can write a song. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that universal creativity you were talking about earlier and just yeah. having the, the tools available to flex that muscle, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my, my wife is, is um, regularly annoyed by the fact that, you know, I will, I will sing sentences to her as opposed to just talk to her. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. My, uh, my fiance is not going to be happy about me discovering a new way to annoy her. But You're she's welcome. she's away at the moment, so it's all good. I'll just make sure I get really good at it by the time she gets back from school. Um, so when last we spoke, um, you'd mentioned a really interesting idea to me um, that you said mm-hmm. sort of sprung a little bit off of um, some things we talked about during the collaboration hub when I brought up mm-hmm. um, something called Joe's Mill, which Kingstonians listening, I'm sure, will be familiar with. But that stands for Musical Instrument Lending Library. And essentially, that's um, a library, but instead of books, it's uh, musical instruments, and people can come and rent them out for periods of time, and um, it's entirely free of charge, and they have fostered um, a lot, a lot of young and and, and old musicians in Kingston, um, and influenced an incredible amount of people, and um, you came... Uh, back at our last meeting uh, with this idea of, of sort of upscaling that to what I think you mentioned it as like a, a young musician's registry or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So, a nas- a, yeah. A national registry for, for kids um, kindergarten through grade 12. Right. And to that kids would, would become a part of this registry. And as a part of this registry, they would 
somehow have access to musical instruments. They would have access to, if not free, subs, you know, um, somewhat subsidized lessons. Mm -hmm. um, maybe, you know, if they don't have free instruments, maybe subsidized rentals. I, I don't, you know, I'm still working out, you know, trying to work out how this could actually work. Um, and then they would have, you know, access to, you know, Zoom conversations and, and instructions from recording artists, you know, that can tell them about their own experiences, but also maybe give them clues on, you know, how to, you know, how to um, unlock the secrets of the violin, how to unlock the secrets of the guitar, the drums, how to, you know, how to mix records. Like, yeah. and, and when I say mix records, I mean, you know, DJs mixing, yeah. you know, DJs mixing records and, you know, how, how does a, a hip hop producer produce? Well, you know, I, I would love for people to, you know, kids to understand, you know, what happens in a, in a writing room when there are seven, eight or 20 people involved mm -hmm. on a track, how does that happen? And, you know, what, what do different people bring into the room so that they can understand what, kind of contributions they could make musically yeah i think it's a fantastic idea I've, and i've been thinking actually a lot about it since you first mentioned it and just how how much of an impact it can have just taking down a few of the barriers to entry for uh yeah. young artists and and you know it's one thing to to say oh you know i want a guitar for christmas you get a guitar uh you noodle around for a little while maybe your parents buy you lessons you get sick of it after a month or two and it collects mm -hmm. dust under the bed um but having a whole swath of amazing opportunities and and materials and things available right off the bat where you're not so much climbing the ladder the way that you used to um i think is a really great idea and something that i would I would very happily promote and be a part of to whatever degree I could um, when it gets off the ground. I think it's it's fantastic, and it goes hand in hand with this um, I, uh, seeming resurgence of of people playing real instruments and the guitar. And no, whatnot. for sure. You know, I I think that one of the things is that you know if you get a, I mean, I bought you know, I I wanted a guitar for my tenth birthday, and I got it, and then I didn't play it. But I always love playing music. And the reason I want it is because, you know, I, I think I wanted as many musical instruments around me as possible so that if I had a whim, yeah. <laughs> I would go, you know. And I mean, it's interesting. You know, I had a converse, you know, on my podcast, the first um, the first episode of my podcast, I, I talked to Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo and he talks about his creative process in writing a song. Can, you know, he the thing that he said that I thought was really interesting and has carried over to all the other subjects that I've talked to is, you know, the idea of not just waiting for inspiration to hit you, but to work towards inspiration. And sometimes what that meant was rather than sitting with his acoustic guitar and playing the same G, C, D chords over and over again, until something came to his head. It's like he has a studio where he can walk from one instrument to another. And if, you know, if it's, if the inspiration is not there on the guitar, maybe it'll be there on the piano. Maybe it'll be there on an upright bass. Maybe it'll be there on a mandolin, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think that that, you know, if somebody's really passionate about guitar, get a guitar. But if you're just exploring music then get a guitar for a week or two, but like spend that week or two, like trying to learn stuff. Yeah. And then go get another instrument and see if you can play the same stuff 
on another instrument. I mean, imagine it's like, you know, I, I don't know if you ever heard this, but, you know, growing up and trying to learn how to play lead guitar, one of the things that, um, one of the pieces of, of advice that I always got was learn how to play sax solos on guitar. Hmm. Because this, because the sax, the, the, um, the range of the saxophone is similar to the range of the guitar, but right. saxophone players attack the notes differently than guitar players do. Hmm. So, you know, and I was like, okay, well, and that's what I started thinking is like, if I can play, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've got a bunch of different instruments around the house. If I can play the same, you know, if I can play something on guitar and then I go pick up my ukulele and, and figure out how to play it on the ukulele. And then, you know, it's like, it sounds different. And then if I go and play it on, you know, on electric keyboard, it'll sound different still. Because at that point, it's like, okay, I can start putting other notes around it. And then I go back to the guitar with those new notes. I mean, it's just, that's the thing that's really great about it. I like, it's, it's, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, you know? <laughs> it's and a jigsaw you know, puzzle without the square edge borders around it. That's exactly right. build it man. wherever it needs to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not all the pieces fit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And God knows that uh, there are a lot of pieces that don't fit, but you know what? those pieces fit somewhere else. So, yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, I just think it's really exciting. And I, I think that, I think that I, I really want to say is I, I think that what you do as a musician writing songs, I think that's magic that you can, that, that you can, you know, write a song, you know, there was nothing. And then sometimes after five minutes, there's a song. And sometimes after five months, there's a song, but there's a song and it's not, you know, I have no trouble picking up a guitar and writing a chord pattern and going, this is really great, but then I can't put any words to it. I have, I, it's, it, that's a total struggle to me that you guys can, you know, pick up your guitars and, and basses and amps, you know, and, and, and the drums and stuff and that you can write a piece of music and then you can put lyrics to it. And then it becomes a real song is unbelievable to me. I mean, like I said, it's, that's like magic. And I, I had this experience, you know, early on again with the Billy Idol thing, when he was writing songs for the Rebel Yell album, um, I would, they would rehearse every single day um, down, downtown in the village. And I, every day at the end of the day, I would go down there to whatever, have to sign papers, deliver checks or whatever. And I would hang out and sit there at the rehearsal hall while they were working on new material. And there's a song on the album called Do Not Stand in the Shadows. And I came there one day and they played the song and I had no, I, they had just written it earlier that day. They played the song. And when the song was over, I looked at Billy and I went, who did that originally? He goes, what do you mean? I went, well, that's a cover. Who did that originally? And he's like, no, we wrote that earlier today. And I was like, that was the first time that somebody, I, I had been around somebody that wrote a song that was fully like, this is a great song. Like, this is a hooky song. I, you know, my friends and I, we'd written songs. I'd played in bands, we, you know, but, but it wasn't like this. Yeah. This was a different level. And it's like, and again, it's like, it's magic. It, it totally is. That's the thing that keeps me doing this, even when, you know, when you lose all hope, which fortunately we haven't, but, you know, especially yeah. in a year like this year, this past year, I suppose, uh, the magic is what makes it worthwhile and uh, it keeps it, it keeps it 
worth putting the pen to paper and worth picking the guitar up and creating things dinky little crappy stuff that you know like the amount of voice memos i have that will probably never become full songs but um that just that exercise that flexing the muscle um is such an important thing and keeps uh it keeps the magic there for for me and and this the the you know one tenth of one percent of the memos i make that become songs that end up on a cd or a record or played out on a stage or on somebody's spotify playlist and they go on to show their friends magic is the way to describe it like i don't even know how that happens you know we we we're nearly at 50,000 streams of our top song on Spotify. And I can't even believe that there are that many people who listened to it. You know, I don't know yeah. how that happens. I, we wrote a song, you know, that the, the chorus of that song was written on the subway in Toronto because Ian made me write a chorus to it. And I didn't want to, I did it like 30 seconds. We laid it down and then suddenly, you know, 50,000 people have listened to it. So it's crazy. Um, and that's, it's, that's amazing. John it's really, Mayer. That's amazing. John Mayer said, you know, being on stage, playing music and stuff, it's like the closest thing to having a superpower. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. I mean, he is, he is a superhuman in my books, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm striving for that superpower still. Well, if I, if I can, if I can share a story that you've heard before, and if I can swear a little in this, it'd be, yeah. it would be good. Make, makes that's what podcasts are for. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I have told you the story before, but I'm share it again. Um, and if anybody has made it this long into the podcast, then you're welcome. Here's, here's yeah. a bonus for you. So back in 2014, um, I had the opportunity to work with Tom Petty. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers fan. And as we were waiting for the interview to start, we were out in Malibu. And when we were start waiting for the interview to start, um, he and I were having this conversation. And I was telling him how I got into his music. And I said to him at one point, you know, it's really amazing to me. It's like, you've released so many records and there isn't one shitty song on any of the records. And he kind of looked at me, looked up at me and smirked and said, well, we just don't let anybody hear the shitty ones. <laughs> and I, you know, and that's so freeing because that's the thing you can create. That doesn't mean that everybody has to see everything that you create. So it can, from time to time, it can be crap <laughs> and that's yeah. okay. I, you know, I, like I said, you know, I say this a million times a week, it seems it's like nobody learned anything by being right all the time. And it's the same thing with creativity. Not everything that's going to come out of your brain, not everything that's going to come out of your hands, not everything that's going to come out of your mouth is going to be fantastic. But the only way to get to fantastic is to go through crappy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, that is a brilliant way to put it. Um, so I don't want to take too much more of your time, um, but I do have a couple rapid fire questions I'd like to ask at the Keep end. Um, mm -hmm. Now, these are a couple of them are, are generally more um, geared towards uh, artists, um, but you know, you're, you're a musician as well. I figured. Thank you very anyway. much. I was going to say, I didn't want to well, have to say I'm an artist. I, I can, there's a good way to put, there's a good way to tweak them. That'll make them make perfect sense. But anyway, first of all, um, beetles or stones? Stones. Well, yeah. yard bird, yard birds actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. That's great. So, uh, most, yeah. most people have said beetles so far actually. So that's good. I, I, I'm glad to have a stones in there. I, I find it hard to make a decision. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, it has more to do for me generally, and for most of the people I've spoken to, just to do with like childhood exposure. Um, well, you, oh, so okay. So, 
I'm old enough that I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. My, and my brother, I was like, okay, I'm not that old that I actually understood what was going on. Yeah, you were <laughs> present. My, my, I was present. But my my brother is eight years older than me, and my sister is thirteen years older. So we were watching it because they wanted to see it. So I knew that there was something that was going on. That being said, the first rock music that really attached itself to my brain were, were the Yardbirds. Mm -hmm. um, and that was through the film Blow Up. And when I go back and I, I'm not, I'm not a huge Beatles fan. I, you know, there's obviously there's a bunch of songs that I think are terrific. And I'm more of a George Harrison guy than, than I love George Harrison, Lennon or, and McCartney. But, you know, when I go back and I listen to Beatles records and I try, you know, and I try to be open-minded there's always a few songs on most records that i'm like uh, 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 yeah. yeah when i go and listen to stones records though i mean since we're talking about beatles and stones mm -hmm. when i go back and listen to stones records there's fewer those fewer of the songs on stones records are yeah because yeah. i'm a riff guy and right. they write great riffs yeah, yeah much you know much more of a riff guy than a sweet melodies kind of guy yeah that's a good way of putting it actually I'm somewhere in the middle. I, I, I absolutely adore riff rock and roll, but um, mm. yeah, like I say, I think it's got to, it's got to do with more of a childhood exposure thing for me. What, what my parents listened to around the house. Mm. Um, all right. My, my dad was tone deaf. So. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say anything about my dad. And my, and my mom, and my mom was in the Toronto Jewish choir. So there's a real dichotomy. There. Oh yeah. Just dad, by the way, in case you're listening, which I know you will be, I'm not disparaging you at all when I just, never mind. Passing <laughs> okay. thought that I'm going to leave. He's the reason I play guitar. So, you know, nice. And he's also my biggest fan. So cheers, dad. Awesome. Um, all right. Uh, albums or singles? Al albums. Yeah, absolutely. Albums. I, uh, I went on a, um, went on a, a, a vacation with a buddy of mine a hundred years ago. We went to Hawaii together and I brought, five to 10 albums with me on cassette. He brought mixtapes. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a different beast. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I kind of, I think originally when I first started really getting into music, I was more of a single listener. I think many people are really when, yeah. when there's a certain artist or song that catches your ear, um, uh, or certain styles that draws you in and naturally you evolve the um, attention span to listen to full albums and appreciate them more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's the thing when you're a kid, the idea that it's a, a body of work just doesn't, it doesn't compute. translate. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so you mentioned that you don't tend to write uh, songs as often, I suppose, as, someone like me, but when you do write, uh, is mm -hmm. it music first or lyrics first or how do you approach that? It's all, it's always music. Yeah. It's always music. And, and then I, you know, I have melodies that sometimes stick and sometimes don't stick, but words, I, you know, I, I wrote a lyric in 1980 or 81 and the lyric was, um, she's got the best seat in history. Mm-hmm. 
that's all I got. <laughs> and I, I, and when I was doing, when I was finishing up my interview with the, with Jim Cuddy, I said to him, I told him this and I said, you know, the lyric is she's got the best seat in history. And he just looked at me and went, well, where are you supposed to go from there? <laughs> like, really, you, you've pretty much said it all, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <In> one line. <laughs> That's, well, who knows? Maybe that was the stroke of genius moment. All, all else Maybe. need not be said. Well, you know, that being said, and, and you know, and one of the, one of the interesting things is, um, are you familiar with the act Guided by Voices? I don't think so, no. Okay, well, worthwhile checking out. It's basically, it's basically a project by one guy, but it's a it's a, a full band. But early on in his career, his songs were never longer than two minutes. He just wrote he wrote what he wrote, and then it ended. And mm -hmm. I and when I found that out, I was like, oh wait a second, that means you don't have to write three verses and three courses and a bridge. Mm -hmm. You can just like when the story's finished, the story's finished. Yeah, that was and a... and. The, you know, and the same and the same way with um, Neil Young hmm. on the song Ohio, where that third verse where he's just doing na na na's because there's he said everything that he had to say in the first two verses. Yeah, yeah. I think um, most artists, if they if they stick with it long enough, will find that there are maybe it's an, a a specific musician or a specific song that just sort of shatters the rule book for them yeah um i've had many experiences like that um but uh yeah there really is no uh formula to do it in any particular way uh unless you want to be a pop star i suppose that formulas are good but well e well even at that it's like you know i mean i think about musically with pop music today the bridge has disappeared yeah mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a shame. Sometimes, the, often, the bridge is the, my favorite part of many songs. But... A lot of times, it's the most interesting part of a song, yeah. musically at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I split my last normal last question into a couple because, uh, sure. person of your position, I'm curious to know if you would, ha if you had just one piece of advice for uh, artists uh, in the current era, what would that be? Uh, this one's easy. Mm -hmm. Don't be concerned with success. Be concerned with greatness. Hmm. I like that. It's a lot to chew on there. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's like, again, it, go, it goes back to what I said before with regards to, you know, setting goals for yourself and things like that. It's like, what is your measure for success? More often than not, it's, it's financial. And if you don't reach it, will that upset you? But if you're, if your goal is to be great, you can always strive for greatness. Mm -hmm. And you'll never be disappointed because everything that you do is a step towards that goal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the regular um, final question I ask is just, um, what's someone or a band that everyone should be listening to these days, in your opinion? What's struck Ooh. you lately? Gosh, um, can you give me half a second here? Because I of can't course. remember the kid's the kid's name. I heard this kid on the Spotify recently, <laughs> and I just think he is terrific. His name is. Come on, get up here. Come on, he's a, he's. I think he's from Cambridge or Kitchener. 
347 Aiden. Okay. And he's a hip hop artist, but a kind of a punk rock hip hop hip hop artist. Hmm. He's an in, he's as far as I can tell he's independent, although I I saw on his uh on his Instagram page that Sony Music is following him, so I'm sure that they're, you know, if they haven't put their hooks in yet, they're trying. Yeah. All right. Awesome. No, I, I, I love one of my favorite things about this podcast is I learn about so much new music to listen to. So I'll definitely have to check them out. I, and, de- and definitely check out guided by voices too. I mean, they've yeah. got so many records out and I, I think that you'll, you'll dig what they're doing. It's not, it's not, it's not much. It not, doesn't really fit in with what you guys do, but you know, that doesn't matter. It's just great rock. I mean, and then there's the Hold Steady, which is a really cool band too. Right. That people should check out. But right. yeah, three four the three four seven Aiden would be my recommendation today for awesome. something that I just found out about ten days or two weeks ago. Awesome. I like it. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you again, Steve, for coming on the podcast. It's great to talk to you again. Always great to pick your brain and hear your insights. And um yeah, I I'm really excited to see uh what develops from this um musicians registry and everything like that so i guess we'll have to keep in touch and uh i wish you all the best thank you and you too and uh oh please and i want to put a plug in for my uh my own podcast the creationist i meant to do that my my apologies i have my notes here and it's the one that i forgot to do that i realized i forgot to write down as soon as we started the call no that's cool no i just you know if, if people if people have a chance to listen to the creationists it's a podcast about people who create and it's a wide variety of people that i speak to from you know people like jim cuddy and gordon lightfoot uh filmmaker ron mann there's golf course architecture it's just the idea is all the different way different ways that people can create i try to find people that are doing that for a living to hopefully inspire people to find the creativity in themselves. Fantastic. Yes. Check out the creationist podcast. It's on Spotify, uh, Spotify, uh, Apple, and everywhere else. Yeah. Wicked. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you, man. It's great to see you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Vinyl Safari. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow Vinyl Safari on whichever podcast platform you're using. And if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to Oak Ridge Ave to catch the latest episodes, new music, and more. We greatly appreciate your support. You can also learn more about Steve online at imstevewaxman.com, and you can follow The Creationist Podcast at The Creationist Podcast on Instagram. Definitely check it out and give them a follow on your preferred podcatcher. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next Vinyl Safari.